Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and I'll begin reading at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Holy Scripture says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also, was, uh, to, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth, and we pray that your word would dwell richly in our hearts. Lead us on the narrow path that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two ways, and only two ways. There is the way of knowing God and walking with God and enjoying His fellowship now and forevermore. This is the way of blessing and life. The other way consists of rejecting the knowledge of God, worshiping counterfeit gods like humanity or nature or physical pleasure or evil spirits or money, and perishing in the darkness now and forevermore. This is the way of folly and death. In Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When God said that, He was showing us that there are two ways. There's the way of obedience that preserves life, and there's the way of disobedience that brings death. We saw these two ways on display in last week's passage in Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 to 5, we saw a sharp contrast between Cain and Abel. Abel walked the way of faith, which means that he let God be God and he did things God's way. But Cain walked the way of 
Unbelief. Cain refused to let God be God and insisted on doing life his own way. There are two ways. There's the way of true faith and humble worship, or there's the way of hard-heartedness and vain religiosity. This very moment, every one of you is smack dab in the middle of one of these two ways. You're either smack dab in the middle of God's way, or you're smack dab in the middle of the way that is not God's way. Abel followed the way of the Lord, the way of life. Cain followed the way of the world leading to death. Blessed are those who know that they are smack dab in the middle of God's way, who know that they are sheep and not goats. For the reference there, read the end of Matthew chapter 25. Now, today's passage, verses 17 to 26, shows us these two ways, the, the, way of the, the way of the world and the way of the Lord. It shows us these two ways unfolding through two distinct parts of Adam's family tree. In verses 17 to 24, we will consider the way of the world. In verses 25 and 26, we will consider the way of the Lord. And then after we consider both ways, I will make application to encourage you to be earnest to follow the way of the Lord. So first, let's consider the way of the world in verses 17 to 24. When I say the way of the world, I mean the way of the rebellious world, the way of the ungodly world, the way of the unbelieving world. What we have in verses 17 to 24 is a snapshot of the ancient ungodly world whose founding father was Cain. When we unpacked verses 1 to 16 last week, we learned that Cain turned away from the way of the Lord, and this brought about destruction and ruin upon the totality of his life. After God issued judgments upon Cain for his sin, we are told in verse 16 that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so Cain went forth and launched a civilization, a civilization east of Eden, a civilization far from the presence of the Lord, a civilization that forgot the foundational lessons that God had taught mankind in the Garden of Eden. The only kind of world that a godless man can build is a godless world, and that is the world shown to us in verses 17 to 24. Now, how can you tell the story of an entire civilization spanning several centuries in just eight verses? Well, in one sense, you can't, but the Bible tells us what we need to know about this civilization by focusing on a few important details that happened either in connection with the founding generation, that is, Cain, or in the late era in generations 6 and 7 through Lamech and his sons. So it tells us about the beginning, it tells us about the end of this civilization. Verse 17 begins, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Inquisitive minds are sometimes compelled to ask, where did Cain get his wife? 
the obvious answer is that Cain necessarily found his wife among his close family members uh, because his close family members were the only other people who existed on the face of the earth at this time. So he either married one of his sisters, that's most probable, but it's also possible that he married one of his nieces, that is, a, a daughter from uh, one of uh, another sibling pair that, that Cain would have had because Adam and Eve had several sons and daughters and they paired off and had children. Either way, Cain took a wife and had a son named Enoch and then Cain started to build a city for verse 17 continues, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Cain wasn't only building a family, he was building a city. It may have been a small city, for all we know, but regardless, he was attempting to build something bigger than his own house. And in the context of Cain's life, it's not difficult to imagine why Cain might have wanted to build a city. Instead of being a perpetual fugitive and wanderer on the earth, verse 12, he might have wanted to build a settlement. Settle down. Instead of living in fear that someone might find him and kill him, verse 14, he might have wanted to build a city as a place of security and defense. Instead of facing his own guilt and accursedness and punishment, verse 13, verses 11 to 13, he might have wanted to create an alternative legacy through his son, thus naming the city he built after his son's name, Enoch. But however impressive or sensible Cain's city building activity might have been, we must keep a level head and remember the truth that God has been showing us in Genesis chapter 4. Who built the city of Enoch? An idolater, a murderer, a liar, an angry, sad-faced, self-pitying, hateful and anxious rebel against God built the city of Enoch. In other words, spiritual darkness is built into the DNA of the city. The city's foundations were laid on sinking sand. The city's future will follow the course of its founder and be assured that things will not end well. Things that do not start well do not end well unless God intervenes. So the first thing we know about the ancient civilization founded by Cain is that if we can liken that ancient civilization to a batch of dough, then this batch of dough was leavened with unrighteousness and wickedness from the very beginning. And when this leaven works its way through the whole batch of dough over the course of centuries, you should expect corruptions of the highest order. The second thing we know about the ancient civilization founded by Cain is that it eventually corrupted marriage. As we do a flyover of verse 18, which simply provides the names of the sons in the second, third, fourth, and fifth generations, we then come to verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Lamech's act of polygamy violates 
God's design for marriage that he revealed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For a husband to be faithful to his bride, his husbandly affections and energies and labors must be devoted exclusively to the one wife with whom he is one flesh. When a man takes a second wife, in that very act, he is committing adultery against his first wife. And then as he continues in marriage to two women, he is continually guilty of committing adultery against both of his wives. Sooner or later, degenerate societies will distort the corrupt I'm sorry, they will distort the blessed institution of marriage, which only makes the degeneracy and dysfunction worse. The third thing we need to know about the ancient civilization founded by Cain is that it was full of activity and innovation. Verses 20 to 22 tell us about Lamech's three sons. The first son, Jabal, was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. The second son, Jubal, was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. The third son, Tubal-Cain, was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Lamech's three sons were innovators and pace-setters within their respective fields. Jabal launched a movement of nomadic herdsmen. Jubal launched a movement of musicians. Tubal-Cain was outstanding in the craft of metallurgy, making all kinds of bronze and iron products. If we were to describe their activities in general terms, we could say that over time, this ancient civilization was characterized by innovative vocational opportunities, music making and entertainment, and the production of tools and technology. And yet, don't miss this. You're supposed to take to heart that this activity and innovation is situated within a civilization that is defined by moral rebellion. A morally rebellious world will entice you with its gadgets, advancements, and concert halls. And your job is to be repulsed by the rebellion, not to be attracted to the cultural facade. The fourth thing we need to know about the ancient civilization founded by Cain is that it became exceedingly arrogant violent and blasphemous. In verses 23 to 24, we get a snapshot of what society had become. It says, Lamech said to his wives, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is using poetry, a literary art form to celebrate what is abominable in the sight of God. Lamech's poetic outburst stands in stark contrast to what many people regard as humanity's first poem in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. After the Lord gave away the first bride to the first man, the man celebrated the goodness of what the Lord had done in creating a woman out of the man. This, at last, is 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first man in the presence of his bride and in the presence of the Lord who had made them and brought them together used poetry to celebrate the excellence of the woman and the goodness of the man-woman relationship. Adam used poetry to render fitting praise for that which is praiseworthy. By contrast, Lamech, in the presence of his two wives and far from the presence of God, used poetry to boast of violence and vengeance. There's a vast moral chasm between Genesis 2.23 and Genesis 4.23. Further, Lamech is celebrating the act of killing a man. A young man had struck Lamech and wounded him. Lamech's response was not measured justice, but merciless killing. And now he's swelling with pride about it. Genesis 4.23 is a window into the ancient world that goes right along with God's assessment of that ancient world in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, which says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence filled the earth in the days leading up to the flood, and violence is what we see in Genesis 4.23. Striking, wounding, retaliating, killing. Worst of all, Lamech is blaspheming God. Lamech boasts, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Do you understand what Lamech is saying? After God punished Cain for murdering Abel, Cain expressed fear that whoever found him would kill him. Verse 14. God responded to Cain's fear with a promise that he would defend Cain's life. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Verse 15. God promised sevenfold vengeance on anyone who would kill Cain. And when a humble man hears about God's promise of sevenfold vengeance, he quiets his heart and bows low in the presence of the Almighty. The humble man is small in his own eyes and God's words are massive and weighty. But when the proud man hears about God's promise of vengeance, He struts around like someone who can outperform God. The proud man is big in his own eyes and God's Word seems insignificant and weak. I can do better than that. So the proud man reasons like this. So what if God promised sevenfold vengeance on anyone who would kill Cain? I promise seventy-sevenfold vengeance on anyone who would touch me. Blasphemy. Lamech thinks that he's of greater value than Cain and that he's a more powerful defender than God. To think and speak in this manner is blasphemy of a very high order. And that, in a nutshell, is the ancient civilization founded by Cain. Unrighteousness and wickedness were baked into this civilization from the very beginning. Marriage was eventually corrupted, and though there were impressive levels of activity and innovation, arrogance and blasphemy were widespread. This ancient civilization was, from beginning to end, a violent culture 
of death. That's the way of the world. But the way of the world, the way, the way of Cain and Lamech is not the only way that one might go. There is another way, the way of the Lord. Verses 25 and 26 give us a ray of hope in a darkened world. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As we learned last week, Abel followed the way of the Lord. Abel was a man of faith, a man who trusted God and worshipped the Lord. And faithful worshipers who have God's approving smile upon them are loathsome to ungodly persons. And so it is that Cain killed Abel. Thus the serpent has taken the first two sons, Cain and Abel, out of commission. Cain is corrupted. Abel is dead. We need someone else. See? And God is gracious, faithful, persistent. And in due time, He granted another son to replace the faithful one, Abel, who had been killed. And so it is that Seth, another son of Adam, was born. In the Hebrew language, the name Seth sounds like the word appointed or given. Thus, Seth is another offspring that God appointed for Eve. Later, Seth had a son named Enosh, and the passage concludes with this crucial detail. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is a central and defining characteristic of those who are following the Lord. The Apostle Paul addressed the Corinthian congregation with these words. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1-2 Godliness requires of us moral excellence, but moral excellence is not the heart of godliness. The heart of godliness is having a heart for God. And those who truly have a heart for God call upon His name. Calling upon the Lord's holy name is a central and defining characteristic of the Lord's holy people. We call upon the name of the Lord because we recognize His supreme worth and sovereign rule. He's the Creator and Sustainer of all things. All authority belongs to Him. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Therefore, we will not call upon lesser realities. We will not order our life around lesser realities. We will call upon the great King whose kingdom rules over all. We call upon the name of the Lord as an act of worship as when Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12.8 We call upon the name of the Lord because we praise His name and are grateful for His bountiful mercies to us. Calling upon the name of the Lord is also an act of dependence. We call upon the name of the Lord because we trust Him. We trust His name. His character, His covenant love, His words, His directions, His judgments, His fatherly care. We cast our cares upon 
Him because that's the only sensible thing to do with the One who holds us and all things in His hand. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 18.10 When we call upon the name of the Lord, we are running into a strong tower that keeps us safe from all our foes. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 18.3 Psalm 123 begins, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. As our eyes look to the Lord, so our mouths call upon His name because we have confident expectation that He will come through for us. In the midst of our troubles, we remember that there is one who has promised to deliver us. The Lord says to His people, call upon Me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify Me. Psalm 50, 15. Calling upon the name of the Lord is actually how sinners get saved in the first place. As we are taught in Romans chapter 10, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 12 and 13. Then, after you taste the Lord's goodness, Calling upon the name of the Lord becomes characteristic of your entire life. If you call upon the Lord like one and done, and then you're moving on, that's a sham. What does a believer, what does a believer do after the riches of God's grace have been bestowed on him? What does a believer do as God's bountiful blessings just pile up upon you? Well, the answer is found in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I am your servant. This is still in Psalm 116. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. From your first expression of humble faith and then through innumerable moments of worship and prayer and song and all the way to your hour of death, and beyond. Calling upon the name of the Lord is to define and punctuate the totality of your life. Does it? Does it? Finally, I want to take a few moments to apply what we have just learned by urging you to be earnest to follow the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord and the way of the world are worlds apart. And yet, we are in the world. And wide and easy is the world's way. 
And we know people who are following that way. And sometimes we are sorely tempted to compromise and chase after the way of sinners. Therefore, I want to press home an important lesson from Genesis chapter 4. And the lesson that's impressed upon me as I think about Abel's example in Genesis 4.4 and as I think about the upcoming example of Enoch, not, not Cain's son Enoch, but the other Enoch, the godly one in Genesis chapter 5, and the example of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and the end of chapter 4 here. What, what is impressed upon me is how utterly single-minded we must be if we're going to follow the way of the Lord. The, the reason, uh, when I say single-minded, I mean single-minded in devotion to the way of the Lord. And the reason this lesson is impressed upon me is because Genesis chapters 4 through 6 show us that this is the one thing that matters in God's sight. This is the one thing that matters. Aside from the fact that Abel was a keeper of sheep, Chapter 4, verse 2, we know almost nothing in terms of the practical biographical details about Abel, Seth, Enosh, the Enoch of chapter 5, and Noah for the first 500 years of his life. We, we hardly know anything about them. What do we know about them? What do we know about Abel? He worshipped the Lord in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. What do we know about Seth and Enosh? They called upon the name of the Lord. What do we know about Enoch in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24? He walked with God. What do we know about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9? He was a righteous man and he walked with God. That's what we know. That's what Scripture tells us. Their lives are a testimony telling us what is truly important in God's sight. What is truly important? Calling upon His name walking with Him and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. That's what matters. But the civilization that Cain founded illustrates the fact that the sinful heart is easily persuaded to become preoccupied with other things. Cain fathered a city. Jabal fathered a movement of nomadic herders. Jubal fathered a musical guild. Tubal Cain made a name for himself in metalworks, which shows us that there's a lot of interesting activity going on in the ungodly world. And I'm not even talking about the overtly wicked stuff that Cain and Lamech were guilty of, but just in terms of architectural and economic and musical and technological activity, there's a lot of interesting activity among the ungodly. Ungodly civilizations, though spiritually adrift and morally compromised, are often characterized by a lot of movement and a lot of cultural development and a lot of technological advancement. And some of you believers are tempted to cozy up to it, envy it, imitate it. But how much pagan cultural production can you cozy up to, envy, or imitate without losing your saltiness? And my point is not that all cultural, economic, and musical, and technological activity is wicked. That's not my point, so don't run out here and say that. But my point is that you're a fool if you think that you can carelessly consume the world's stuff. 
You must give thought to your steps. Therefore, I am pleading with you to see the world the way that God sees it. Because if you don't keep watch over your own soul, you are likely to get seduced by the cultural and and economic and technological prowess of the world in which you live. 21st century China has become an economic, technological, and military powerhouse. And yet as a nation, it is steeped in moral rebellion against God. It is known that 1930s Germany was one of the most educated countries in the world. And throughout that decade, it remade itself culturally and economically and militarily, and yet it deployed its resources and tools, its scientific and technological know-how to exceedingly wicked and corrupt ends. The inhabitants of the United States of America have known unparalleled freedom, opportunity, and wealth, and yet we have become an upside-down nation, a culture of death that is shot through with moral rot. And as we have an open Bible in front of us, Genesis 4 to Genesis 6, we need to take stock of where the civilization founded by Cain is headed. Where is it headed? It is headed to complete and total destruction when the Lord destroyed the ancient world through the flood in Genesis chapter 7. But sinful people are not disposed to see the world the way that God sees it. People see the cities and the buildings and the towers, and the fine eateries. People see the infrastructure, and organization, and production, and wealth. People see the innovations, and comforts, and pleasures, and diversions, and they think, this isn't half bad. It's, it's good, actually, and it's probably only going only to get better. People don't see the terminal spiritual cancer at the heart of society, but God sees, He sees the wickedness the corruption, the violence, and he is ready to wipe out the evildoers. He is not impressed by their fleshly achievements. He is not impressed by their show of intelligence and strength. The question is, are you impressed by it? Over and over again, Jesus calls us to abandon the value system of this present world against the temptation to gain the whole world. Jesus calls us to lose our lives for his sake and the gospel's. Mark 8, 35 and 36, against the temptation to get into compromising entanglements with unbelievers, God says, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Scripture says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Just like that ancient civilization founded by Cain, it has passed away. It's gone. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 15-17. The believer's mindset is single-minded devotion to the will of God. Some of you young people are probably tempted to let your devotion to Christ be tempered by the art of being cool. 
And I'm here to say that God has no, rega- no regard for you being cool, fashionable, trendy, hip, culturally adept, as defined by the pagan gatekeepers of cultural adeptness. God is looking for a certain kind of person, and it is not the kind of person that is smack dab in the middle of Cain's self-congratulating civilization. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. God is not looking for resourceful people to add value to His company. Instead, God is looking for humble people who trust Him as their one thing. People who understand that God is the supreme treasure and that He provides more joy and security than all of the world's resources put together. The believer says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some of you, should be advised to immediately take about six or seven concrete steps away from the world's value system and to discover or rediscover what Abel knew so well, that God is a greater treasure than anything the world offers you. And I'll tell you what, whether you need to discover the way of the Lord for the first time or whether you need to rediscover it after a dry season, or simply go deeper into it as the delight of your heart, I want to emphasize that God rejoices when a sinner turns to Him in simple faith. That fool Lamech boasted of 77-fold vengeance, but our Lord Jesus Christ spoke about 77-fold forgiveness. Of course, He said that, in his instruction about how we should not be keeping a record of wrongs with one another. But we should keep on forgiving one another from the heart. But where does that gracious forgiveness among us, where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. Cain and Lamech were the sort of men who killed others in order to advance their own self-serving agenda. By sharp contrast, King Jesus was single-mindedly devoted to the Father's will. And therefore, He laid down His life. He didn't take life. He laid down His life as a sacrifice for sin so that self-seeking people like you and me could be freed from our self-seeking sin and be brought into His kingdom that will never end. As self-serving sinners discover the incomparable grace of Jesus displayed at the cross, They fall out of love with the way of the world and they call on the name of Jesus. And as they experience the joy of doing life with Jesus and with Jesus' followers, let me tell you something. The world loses its luster and it is supposed to. The songwriter has taught us well. In the morning when I rise, Give me Jesus. And when I am alone, give me Jesus. And 
To that I would add, in my coming and going, in my working and resting, in the afternoon and evening, and when I'm with other people, and in everything at all times, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, yes, that too. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. You, you can have all this world. You, if you want to be like Cain and live away from the presence of the Lord, if you want to be like Lamech and go even deeper into darkness, if you want to get cozy with Jubal and Tubal Cain, go ahead. You can have all this world. But as for me, give me Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us Jesus. It's all we need. I pray that you would so move in our hearts that we could actually sing from our hearts and mean it and live it. I'd rather have Jesus. Amen.